Family and Grace Community Church this morning. I know we got a lot of people in the back today. Can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me all the way back? All right. Uh, one more favor. If you do not have a study guide this morning, throw up a hand. And there's some extras around the room. Uh, and if, and why don't we do this? If you're a married couple this morning, why don't y'all share one today? And we'll try to get one to all the hands that are up in the air. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn this one to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. All right, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, and I'm bad about taking way more time than I need to. So we're going to jump right in today. We're going to go to God. We're going to ask God to bless the preaching of his word, and then we're going to dive right in. Let's pray, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we tell you, God, that it's a wonderful thing to stand in your presence and know that we are clean through the blood of Christ. It's a wonderful thing, Lord, to know that we have been accepted by God, the righteous judge forever. God, that you are perfectly satisfied on our behalf because of the work of your son. And God, we thank you for that privilege that we can stand in your presence clean and as your own children and sing your praise God sing the praise of the living God not an idea but the one who reigns right now over all that he has made the one who draws near as we sing praise to your name God thank you for your presence in your church God thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit as we worship you as we sing your praise and God, we ask that you would draw near to us even now as we open your word, God, that you would bless the teaching of your word, that you would make it effective in the life of this church, in the life of every person in this room by the power of the spirit. Lord, come, don't let your word fall to the ground today, Lord, come use it in our midst to accomplish your purposes. God, I pray for Grace Community Church, my brothers and sisters, that you would meet us here today in such a way that we would go serve you all week long, Lord, in the strength that you supply, God, so that you get glory in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 5 this morning, and I want to remind us. Where we left off last week, because we're coming in in the middle of a in the middle of a stories, so to speak. And so last week, you know, this is the first time in the book of Acts that you can say it like this, that sparks begin to fly, that the gospel begins to cause some trouble in the book of Acts. And what we saw last week is through the power of the risen Jesus. I want to remind you just really quickly what happened. Through the power of the resurrected Christ, a man 
who was lame for 40 years. He had no muscular ability in his legs for 40 years from birth. He was lame. He never stood. He never moved his legs. And all of a sudden, in a moment of time, through a command given in the name of Jesus, this man springs to his feet and begins jumping around right in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem. God acted in power and in a moment of time, through the name of Jesus, this powerful miracle was done in public. And Peter used that miracle as an opportunity to preach the gospel full of the Holy Spirit. He preaches Jesus. He preaches about what Jesus has come to do, who Jesus is. And the Bible tells us that hundreds of people were saved in a moment of time. This is a power display, another power display of the resurrected Christ. He's showing how powerful he is, how much authority he has sitting at the right hand of God and reigning through His Spirit that He has poured out on His church. And yet, at the same time that we see this massive power display of Jesus Christ, we see this evangelistic reaping, people getting saved, we see this opposition arise. And Satan's behind the scenes in the book of Acts, and he's beginning to stir up a resistance movement to the Gospel He's throwing up resistance to the apostles. And Acts chapter 4, our passage today, is going to be the first taste of persecution that the church of Jesus faces. And so the leaders in the Jerusalem temple, they throw the apostles in jail. They spend one night in jail and boom, we pick up this morning right where we left off last week. The Sanhedrin... Is about to put the apostles on trial. Let's begin to read this passage in verse 5. We'll work through it in pieces this morning. But let's read it together. This is what happens next. Verse 5. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. With Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. And all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? By what power or what name did you do this? Now I want to pause right there and I want to give us some background of the book of Acts and this New Testament period. And I think this will be helpful to you. So we'll front load a lot of background information to try to help you catch the flow of this passage. And so I want you to know a little bit about who these men are that we were just introduced to. We have three phrases there. The rulers, the elders, and the scribes. And history is very clear on this, that this group in Israel, this was an official group known as the Sanhedrin. These were the Jewish leaders of the Jewish nation. This was an official group of 70 men plus the high priest, bringing the total number to 71, the official leaders in Israel. At this particular time in history, the office of high priest had lost a lot of its Old Testament significance. Okay? And it became a very politically motivated 
thing. And so I want you to remember that at this time uh, the new, in the New Testament that Palestine and Israel, they're under Roman rule. They're under Roman rule. And the Romans are actually the ones that are appointing the high priest um, over the Jewish people. So this became a very politically motivated thing. It lost its godliness, the spirituality of it. It became a very political, even today, like uh, political appointees. You know, who you know, um, uh, this inside game. And throughout the majority of New Testament period, one particular family held this office for over 30 years. They held the office of high priest. And we were given four names in, in our passage today. And all of these names are part of that same family. The family of Annas. Annas was high priest from 6 to 15 AD. And then his son Caiaphas became high priest in his place from from 18 to 36 A.D. Caiaphas, if you remember, was the high priest who presided over the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Caiaphas is still the high priest who is presiding over the apostles as they're put on trial. And so this is helpful for you to know, you know, that that high priest shows up in the plural sometimes in the New Testament. Because uh, you have multiple men living that served in that office. You know, they made somebody mad. they not the high priest anymore. And Romans put somebody else in their place. So in a real similar way that we call, you know, presidents that are in office right now. We still call them President Bush, President Obama. The same thing is playing out here that we have several men who have served in this office. But the current high priest. Is Caiaphas and all these men are members of the same family and they have prominent seats on the Sanhedrin. Now, let's talk just for a moment more. Okay, Sanhedrin. I want you to think the highest Jewish authority in Israel. Okay, I don't want you to think, you know, uh, um, Hines County uh, Circuit Court. I want you to think Supreme Court of the United States of America. The supreme uh, Jewish power in Israel. Both judicially and politically. And so Palestine is under Roman rule at this time. But they're allowing the Jewish people to have a good bit of autonomous authority. And they cede this to the Sanhedrin. This is not ultimate authority in Israel. That belongs to Rome. But this is a real, real authority. And as far as Jewish power goes, these are the most powerful men in Israel because they rule, they govern the temple. They govern the temple. And I say all that to say this, okay? That we're seeing a conflict that's not just generic persecution, okay? It's not just generic opposition to the gospel, right? And, and, and we certainly face generic opposition, whether that's in the family, in the workplace, in the neighborhood. And there's certainly things we can learn from this passage that apply to generic opposition of the gospel. But what I want you to see that's happening here. Is that there's something more. Okay? These are the official representatives of the Jewish nation. The official representatives of the Jewish nation. And what this means 
is this is the formal rejection of the Jewish people of the Jewish Messiah. How sad is that? John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came for his own people, Israel. And what happened? They did not receive him. But now, now we're not saying that Jews didn't get saved, that Jews didn't, that some Jews didn't respond to the gospel. But by and large, they they rejected the Jewish Messiah. And you have this court convened in the official leaders of the nation, and they are continuing to reject the Jewish Messiah. And, and they asked, that, so, they, so they convened this court in the Sanhedrin. This is very official, okay? And they asked this question, by what authority did you do that? By what means did you do that miracle? And isn't it interesting? This is the same council of men that condemned Jesus. And they're asking him the same questions that they asked the Lord Jesus Christ. By what authority do you teach like that? By what authority are you saying these things? Now, another important thing for us to understand is that these are not good motivated men. They don't have good motives in asking that question. They're not asking for information. They already know the answer to that question. And we know that. Peter has already stood up in the temple publicly after this miracle was done in the name of Jesus. And he, and he points at that man and he says, Not by our power, not by our piety is this man made well, but in the name of Jesus Christ. He was made completely well. They already know the answer to that question. By whose name are you doing this? By whose authority are you doing this? What they're doing is they're trying to establish formal charges of blasphemy. They want to kill these men. They want to do the same thing to the apostles that they did to Jesus. And so they're trying to catch them in these trumped up charges of blasphemy. And so what I want us to see here is that we're, we're about to study a tremendous spiritual conflict. Okay? Not just generic opposition, but an official spiritual conflict of the Jewish people rejecting the Jewish Messiah. And so I want you to see these, this is a conflict of, of two sets of leaders. And this is what we see here. You have the leaders in the Sanhedrin of the apostate Jewish nation. And I want you to listen. I want to carefully define that. That the Jewish nation as it exists today is apostate. It is apostate. They have rejected the Christ. And when they rejected the Christ, they ceased to be the people of God. We'll come back to that. Okay? So you have the leaders of apostate Israel. And then you have these other men. Why are there 12 of them? We've already talked about this a little bit. Why are there 12 apostles? And that answer is relatively simple. That these men stand in the place of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they are a representation of the new Israel that King Jesus is raising up in place of apostate Israel. And so you have these two leaders. You have these two men standing on behalf of the twelve. And there's, there's a standoff here. There's a tremendous spiritual conflict 
apostate Israel versus true Israel. And you have Satan and his servants on the one side. And you have Jesus and his servants on the other. And this is really important because this is an undercurrent that's running through the book of Acts. That we're watching as the gospel goes forward and as things unfold. We are seeing Judaism be replaced by Christianity as the one true religion. Now, I want to carefully define that. What we don't mean is that anything in the Old Testament doesn't count and didn't matter. But what we do mean is Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to the fathers. And he becomes so decisive that for the people of God to reject Jesus, they cease to be the people of God. And we're in the midst of that transition in the book of Acts. That God is raising up a new people in place of this apostate nation that has rejected the Messiah. And what we're going to see even next week is that God is raising up a new temple. In just a few decades... You know, go forward 70 A.D., this temple in Jerusalem is going to be torn to the ground and it still hasn't stood even to this day. God judged this nation, tore it to the ground, and he raised up another temple in his place. And so we see this temple coming into being in the book of Acts. And so we see the center of gravity in the book of Acts shifting from Judaism, temple, and and, and we're in process. And we need to see that undercurrent as we're studying through the book of Acts together. Because there's a real shift taking place. And behind that shift, sparks are flying. Spiritual sparks are flying. There's conflict. There's opposition. There's true and false gospels. True and false leaders. So as these sparks begin to fly, I want us to keep going forward. I want us to see the apostles' response. To this question, by what authority? By what means? Let's pick it up again in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Tremendous boldness. This is what sticks out to us in this passage. That their life is on the line. They've already killed Jesus. Do you think in their minds that they have any thoughts that they're walking out of this this Sanhedrin council alive? I think they know that they're about to die. Fully expect that they're about to die. And they, and they respond with tremendous boldness. Tremendous boldness. 
I want us to see this as a fulfillment of prophecy. If you have your Bibles, turn really quickly back to Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus actually prophesied what we're studying. He prophesied the trial and he prophesied this bold response. Now I want us to be encouraged by this. Matthew chapter 10 verse 17. Jesus says, beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 4. They're dragged into the council and they're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is speaking through the lips of these men as they're facing tremendous opposition. So when you put yourself in the place of Peter, you're standing before the highest court in the land, the most powerful men in the nation. And you know they're trying to trap you in order to kill you. How does he respond? This is amazing. He doesn't begin to explain himself. First thing I want you to notice is he indicts them. They're trying to trap him. And he turns the corner, goes on offense, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he indicts these men. Seventy-one of the most powerful men in the nation. And he begins to call out their guilt, filled with... With the Spirit of God. And he actually does this twice. Verse 10 and 11. And he basically looks at him and he says this. You crucified the one that God raised. Let that sit for a moment. Is that a problem? You crucified a man that God raised from the dead. God reversed your judgment on Jesus. He overruled you. You were wrong. You killed him, God raised him. And then the very next thing he says, and by the way, you rejected the stone that God made the cornerstone. You threw him away as a worthless brick and Jesus was the most significant piece of the entire structure. He's establishing their guilt. He's indicting them. That the Supreme One has come. The most significant person in all of history has arrived. And you thought he was worthless. You thought he was so worthless that you had him hammered to a cross. But God overruled you. God raised him from the dead. You counted Jesus as worthless. And to be honest with you, that strikes a nerve with me. And the reason why is because I've done that before. And I want to pause right here and I want to I just, just speak to you for a moment. I've done that before. How about you? What I don't mean is I, I'm not literally guilty of hammering Jesus to the cross. That's not what I'm talking about. 
But I've heard in my life many times about the most significant one that has ever come. I've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of somebody talking about Jesus, many times I have given a rip about it. God made him the cornerstone. And I've done that. I've discarded him as a worthless brick. Who cares? Oh, honor Jesus with my lips. Yeah, pay, pay him, you know, religious honor. And then my heart be far from him. And my suspicion is that you've done the same thing in your life. And what I want us to see is how guilty are we? Of just that one sin, how guilty does that make us if we reject the cornerstone? If the most significant one, the supreme one, comes and we think him to be worthless, valueless. How offensive is that to God? How sinful does that make us? Ask yourself this question. Have you loved Jesus with all of your heart, your entire life? Have you done that? Have you valued him as the supreme one every day that you've ever been alive? Or have you ever been guilty of this same thing? Rejecting the one that God made the cornerstone. And the truth is that we're all guilty of this. The Bible teaches us that we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And what this means is that every, if this were just the only sin that you ever committed in your entire life is being bored with Jesus Christ, hearing the things of Jesus and just caring less about it, indifferent towards it. If that was the only sin that you've ever committed, which it's not, but if that were the only sin, you deserve hell forever for rejecting God's Son. The Son of God, the Righteous One, invading this world, paying for your sin, rising from the dead. And for us to respond to that with indifference, we deserve wrath for our sin. We deserve punishment for our sin. And so Peter's indicting these men. He's exposing their sin. He's exposing that they are guilty before God And I want us, as he's doing that, I, I don't want to just be hard on them. I want every one of us to remember we're in the same boat. Guilty. Universal sin. Universal guilt before God. And you know, that's the only background that makes Peter's next move make sense. Because the next thing he begins to talk about is salvation from sin. Really important that you get that. The good news rescues you from the bad news. If you don't have the bad news, you don't understand the good news. That's the appropriate background. So he indicts them and then he begins to preach salvation. He announces the good news of the gospel. That's what that word salvation means. That there's salvation in Jesus. That God has done something in Jesus to where you can be saved. You can be rescued from your guilt. You can be rescued from your wrath. It's good news. Salvation from sin. All of your sin. 
can be laid upon Jesus. Every single sin and all of His spotless righteousness can be given to you. And we, sinful ones, dirty ones, through this work of Christ, can stand clean before the Holy God. This is the Gospel. He begins to speak about salvation in Jesus Christ. There's salvation through His death, through His resurrection, through faith in His name. We can be saved. We can be saved. I want you to see that this message of salvation is inclusive. Talk about that first. It's good news for everybody. It's really important that we get that. It's good news of salvation from sin for everybody. Notice what he says. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. He word twice. All. Everybody is to hear this. Everybody is to be offered this gift of salvation from sin in the name of Jesus. It's for everybody. Not for a certain race, not for a certain country, not for a certain uh, socioeconomic class. It's for everybody. Old, young, it's for everybody, for all. This is good news. Everybody can be rescued from wrath through salvation in Jesus' name. Everybody. And then in the same paragraph... I want you to notice not only is it inclusive, but that this gospel, this message of salvation is exclusive. And we see that in verse 12, Peter begins to say, there is salvation in no one else. No other name. It's exclusive. I want everybody here to know that the Bible clearly teaches that God is intolerant. Okay? That is the greatest sin of the American culture, right? To be intolerant. And I want us to know this about God is intolerant. God is intolerant of every other religion. God does not accept any other religion. There is no other name by which any human being can be saved other than the name of Jesus. Now I want you to imagine how offensive that was to the highest court in the Jewish land, the Sanhedrin. They're sitting there in their in their religious pride, the highest men in the land, and Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, says, If you want to be saved, you gotta bow the knee to the man from Nazareth. Because there's no other name under heaven by which Anybody can be saved. I want you to imagine that. That exclusive gospel piercing that heart and causing an offense. Causing an offense. They would have hated this claim. This exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. But this is what Peter's preaching. The God of Israel, He saves, but He saves only through Jesus. No salvation in any other name. No salvation. In any other name, they hated it. And the world still hates this. This is what the world hates about the gospel. 
This is what the world hates about the gospel. Is that the real gospel is not one of many ways to God. It's not a personal preference. It's not you do you and I'll do me. That's not the real gospel. The real gospel announces Jesus as Lord over everything that he has made. The real gospel, it doesn't matter if someone says, well, I don't think Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. It's an objective reality. It doesn't matter what people think. The real gospel is a call for every human being to submit to King Jesus. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your preferences are. The world hates this about the gospel. And especially our pluralistic culture hates this. The supreme virtue in our culture is tolerance. And this is viewed as narrow-minded, bigotry, intolerance. The very epitome of hate and a lack of love. This idea that Jesus is the only way... Full stop. Period. End of sentence. It can't be that simple. It can't be that black and white. That's the argument. Look at what he says here. No other name, and he doesn't say in Israel. What does he say? There is no other name under heaven, under heaven, by which anybody can be saved. That pretty much covers it. No other name under heaven. Heaven. You need to settle this in your life. And I remember struggling with this as a new Christian. And so I don't condemn you, but I'm trying to help you with this. Okay? You need to settle this idea that there's this, you know, vague, far off possibility that somebody could be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. You need to settle that. The Bible is claiming in this text and other verses like this. The Bible is telling us that there is not one drop of saving grace outside of Jesus Christ. Period. God did not send His Son to be hammered to a cross so that there could be some other way to sneak around this bloody, slaughtered Christ. There is no other name under heaven. And you need to settle this. Once and for all, you need to settle this. Why, Dustin? Why, Peter? Why is there no other name? Think about that. Who else came to save you? What other name are we we, uh, lobbying for? Who else came to save you from your sins? Who else came to save you from wrath? Name them. Who else invaded human history to take on your sins, to die in your place? Who else has done that? We sing a song at Grace Community Church. And we praise Christ as the one who has paid the blood price for our sins. I love that phrase. Only Jesus could have done that for me. And that's the question, right? Who else? has come to pay the blood price for you? And the answer is only Jesus. That's why there's no other name under heaven. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Think about this. Who else has come to rescue you 
from your strongest enemy, death. Who else has come and overpowered death through resurrection? Name them. The answer is only Jesus. And so this is really simple. Why only Jesus? Why so exclusive? Why so narrow? Because there's no one else qualified to do this. He is the unique Savior of the world. He is the only one that can do this work. And He is the only one that has done this work. This is God's answer to human sin. To hammer His Son to a cross and have Him rise triumphantly from the dead and offer salvation to everyone in His name. Jesus had no problem in claiming this, that He was the only way. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you're here today and you want to be right with God, this passage is giving you tremendous clarity that the only way that that will ever happen is you have to deal with Jesus. You have to respond to what God has done in Jesus. You have to rightly respond to the Gospel of Jesus. Because there is salvation in no other name. You will never make it to the Father except through Him. This is an exclusive Gospel. Exclusive Gospel. A narrow way. And something that Ron reminded us of last week is he talked about the true Gospel being a fork in the road. Talked about we have to be willing to be a fork in the road in people's life that it's going to offend some, but some are going to accept it. And here we see this same thing. And we're reminded, what does this exclusive gospel do? Well, you begin to preach that Jesus is the only way. And it produces, it provokes persecution. It produces enemies. Okay, we need to be aware of that. We need, we need to count that cost on the front end that everybody's not going to like it when we say that about Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. No other way. That's going to produce enemies. And we need to be prepared for that. But I love this. Because there's, there's, there's this other side of the true gospel, this exclusive gospel. Not only is it making people upset, Producing enemies always has provoked persecution. But what is it doing at the same time? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so we sign up for both. Yeah, if we preach this gospel, we're going to suffer. But guess what else we're going to see? We're going to see people raised from the dead through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see God bring His powerful salvation. And only this exclusive gospel produces that. So he's preaching it with boldness. Indicting. Preaching Jesus. Let's continue on to how they respond in verse 13. It says this, Now when they, saw the, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, 
They had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak. Of what we have seen and heard. And all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So I want us to think about this. The, the thing that stuck them in their deliberations. They hear Peter indict. They hear Peter preach. And the text tells us the thing that jumped out to them was their boldness. And they were astonished by it. That's the word that he uses in Acts 4. They were astonished at the boldness of these men. Why? And it answers because they were common men. Okay? They were unlearned men. And what that means is they have not jumped through the formal hoops a theological training in Israel. Translation. They didn't do the stuff that the, the Sanhedrin set up. You didn't jump through our hoops is what they're saying. Wait, hey, how did you get that boldness? You didn't jump through our hoops. You didn't come through the formal track. The rabbinic school. The training. You didn't come through that. So how did you get that boldness? That's the astonishment. That these common men would be filled with the power of God. You have the most powerful men in Israel astonished at this boldness. And they recognized that the boldness came from being with Jesus. It was the fruit of the presence of Jesus Christ. And I want us to remember that. That the secret to spiritual power, spiritual boldness, spiritual authority, it's not formal theological education. That is a really bad idea that needs to be rooted out of the church. If you jump through the formal hoops, then you'll be ready. If you jump through the formal hoops, then you'll be ready. And I want to say that formal theological training, nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm talking about. But the bad idea is this. If you go through the hoops, then you're ready. This is telling us the exact opposite. That spiritual authority, spiritual boldness, spiritual power, it comes from a personal walk with Jesus Christ. It comes from the Spirit of God dwelling inside a man or a woman. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from formal theological training. And this definitely shows us that, right? Astonishing boldness. Are you encouraged that God can fill you with this same boldness? So this one thing I want us to root out is wrongly thinking about formal tracks and formal trainings. Look at, look at what God is doing with common men. 
Next thing I want to use this paragraph to root out is this idea. We need to get back to the early church. They did miracles. We need to get back to the early church. Because they did miracles all the time. We need to get back to the early church because they did miracles all the time. And if we could do that same thing, thousands of people would be saved. Test that by this passage. I want you to notice something. Okay? The secret to effective evangelism is not miracles. It is not miracles. Look at what is happening in this Sanhedrin. In this official council. Look at, look at what it says here. Verse 14, this man who was lame for 40 years is standing right beside Peter in the middle of the courtroom. Keyword, standing. He laid down for 40 years and he's standing. They are watching a man who was lame stand in front of them. Look at what it keeps, keeps on saying. Verse 16. They're talking to each other. Say, hey, you know what? A notable sign has been done. And then he goes forward. Evident to all Jerusalem. They knew what just happened. And then, just to be really clear, going forward, verse 16, the Sanhedrin went as far as saying these words. We cannot deny it. Let that sink in. We, we cannot deny this. That's how public, that's how evident... That this healing was. The man is standing right there. We, we can't deny it. Now. Miracles are good. Miracles are acts of God. Miracles are display of the power of God. But don't think wrongly. Okay. Don't think wrongly about miracles. Grace Community Church. I want you to look at the Sanhedrin. And I want you to bury this example in your mind. And I want you to learn that even miracles cannot change hard hearts of unbelief. They cannot. God has not designed miracles to function like that. I will remind you of a man named Pharaoh that saw the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God in the entire Egyptian nation. Saw plagues fall on the entire nation. And that story finishes with an Egyptian army trying to kill the people of Israel. Miracles do not change hard hearts of unbelief. Listen very closely. God has not designed miracles to create faith. I'll say that again. I don't want you to misunderstand me. God has not designed miracles to create faith. That's not the way it works. The object of faith in the scriptures, what faith looks to is always God and his word. The object of faith is God and his word. God and his word create faith. Romans 10 verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Miracles are not intended to create faith. But they are given to confirm faith. So don't get this twisted. If somebody does not believe the gospel, seeing a fireworks show is not going to win them. Miracles are not given to create faith. They're given to confirm faith. To strengthen faith. 
I want to remind us of a parable that Jesus taught about miracles. This is a parable of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And in this parable, he, t- he, he reminds very explicit. He tells us that true faith does not rest on miracles. Listen closely. Even if that miracle was seeing someone rise from the dead. And so here's the thought that I'm trying to root out of our minds. Okay, When we share the gospel and people reject it. When we share the gospel and people reject it. The wrong idea is that if we had more fireworks, they wouldn't reject it. And what Jesus is about to say, I'm going to read this verse, is if he says, he says this. No, no, even if they saw someone rise from the dead, if they will not hear the word of God, they will not believe in, in, in what he said. So let's read this together. Please turn to Luke 16. Luke 16. Verse 30. This is the rich man. And he's in hell. And this is his plea. Luke 16 verse 30. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Notice what he's saying. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they see a resurrection, they will repent. And then look at the answer. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Don't get this twisted. Okay? Don't get this twisted. Miracles are given to strengthen faith. They are not given to create faith. Exhibit A, Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. Full of unbelief. Full of hardness. They're rejecting. They're seeing the power of Jesus, but they're rejecting the gospel of Jesus. Filled with unbelief. They give the apostles an impossible demand. And they say... Don't talk to anyone about this anymore. Don't speak anymore. Teach anymore in this name. I want you to notice that they did not say don't heal anybody anymore. And I want you to remember Satan is behind this opposition. What is Satan trying to stop more than anything else is the lips of the church announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to crush it. He wants to shut that mouth. Why? Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the earth as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Every time it's announced, it's getting closer to Satan's ultimate and eternal destruction. He does not want the church preaching. So he uses this counsel, these powerful men... To give this threat. Don't talk to anybody anymore in the name of Jesus. But this was impossible. Okay? And I love the way that this is worded, their response. Because basically, in a lot of ways, the most powerful court in Israel said, Don't do this anymore. And a fisherman says, No. 
At the end of the day, it's there. I hear what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But my answer to you is no. This is an impossible request. And he gives two reasons why. One reason is because I have been given a commandment. And he appeals uh, in his response. And he appeals that God has commanded me to be his witness. We see that in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. And as Peter's sorting through what they're calling him to do, he says, I can't do that. Okay? I can't disobey God in order to obey you. I have to obey God. And I can't obey you if you're telling me to disobey God. God has commanded me to be his witness. And then often overlooked, I want you to see this phrase in verse 20. Not only did he say, I've been given a commandment. Jesus told me to do this. I can't disobey him. In verse 20, he says this. We cannot but speak. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now that's a different category. He basically says, I, I, I literally cannot do what you're asking me to do. This is like commanded a man, don't breathe anymore. No, nobody can do that. You know, Th this is what we're created for. It's like telling a fish. Sorry, guys. All right, what? Well, we just keep going. I have no idea what I was saying. Compulsion, compulsion. Okay? And the thing that's beautiful to me about this is he's pointing to something happening in his life and he's saying, I cannot but speak of what, of what I have seen and heard. And he's talking about the Spirit of God is at work in his life in such a way that it's got to come out. I am being compelled to speak about Jesus. And I want you to see evangelism like that. You need to know that you are commanded. But you need that compulsion by the Holy Spirit that you cannot stop speaking about Jesus. This is the Spirit of God awakening you. You have a tongue... You have a mouth for Christ. Do you know that the Bible teaches that? Colossians chapter 1. All things were made by Him, and then listen to this, and for Him. Your tongue exists for Jesus. Your lips exist for Jesus. Your mouth and the ability for you to speak and articulate words, that exists for Christ. And we need to see our mouths like that. We cannot use what Jesus has given us uh, we cannot stop speaking about Jesus. The Spirit of God can produce that compulsion in your life. He can. We're going to come back and talk about that as we close. Alright, let's finish up with how the church responds in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their fields and reported friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them and when they heard it they lifted their voices together to God and said sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nation, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, with boldness. All right, in one word, I want us to see what does the church do? Persecution breaks out. What does the church do? And in a word, their response is to pray, to call out to God. And I want to use um, just the last bit of this passage. I want to pull out some things from their prayer. And I want to highlight some things that I think would be helpful to us. Is, is this, is, this is good marks of prayer. Uh, of How should we be praying as a church? So first, I want you to notice this. They knew God. They knew who God was. They knew the attributes of God. They knew who the one true God was. Look at how they begin this prayer. Very first word they say is this. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. That word sovereign is something that our generation likes to argue about. But it's something that the early church took to God in prayer and worshipped Him and called on Him as the God of power. The God of highest authority. The God with no rivals. And so they're praying to a big God. Not a little God. Not a God fashioned by the human brain. But they're praying to the sovereign one. The mighty one. The ruler over everything that He's made says that, that the one who made all things. You see that there? Verse 25. Verse 24. The one who spoke by the Holy Spirit. This is a big God. The living God. So they're calling on God. They know who God is. And the second thing I want us to see is they're praying the Bible. They're praying the Bible. They knew who God was. And they knew the Word of God. And here's what I mean. If you see in verse 25, in the middle of their prayer, they begin to quote two verses from Psalm 2. So think about that. They're praying, they're, they're, they're bringing this thing before God, and then they smuggle a verse of Scripture into their prayers. They're praying the Bible. And what that verse shows us is it shows us how they're thinking about that situation that just went down in the Sanhedrin. They come back into the prayer meeting and they say, Yep, that was a Psalm 2 conflict. They didn't see that as just a personal attack 
on Peter and John. They saw that as an attack on the Christ of God. That was opposition laid on Jesus. Shows us how they're thinking about this. It's not that they got their feelings hurt. Okay, They're filled with zeal for the glory of Christ. They draw attention to the fact that these leaders are rebelling against Jesus. And then the next thing I want us to see is this very clear. As they look back on that opposition, not only did they say Psalm 2 just happened, but they say that was God's will. They interpret the persecution and the opposition that they faced for preaching Jesus, they interpreted it as the will of God. God, you just willed that. Here's where I'm getting that from. What did the Sanhedrin do to the apostles? Verse 28 says, Whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place, that's what they did. They did God's will. God has a plan that He's predestined from the foundation of the world, and His hand accomplishes His plan. God doesn't just have ideas. He actually bends rules and works in all of history to accomplish his purpose. And this was a tremendous comfort to them in suffering and in persecution to know that this came to us from the hand of God. That this, this bad stuff in our life, this came to us under the sovereign hand of God. So it's a comfort in times of trial to have a big God, a big view of who God is. And this reminds me of there's a, there's a phrase that George Whitfield is quoted uh, with saying quite often. And he says this. He says, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. And that's what a big view of the sovereignty of God does in, in, in spite of opposition, in spite of persecution. That there's a real sense that nothing can happen to you unless God wills it. Nothing. Not one thing can happen to you unless God wills it. You will not die until your work that God has given you is done. You won't. You won't. God is sovereign. Okay? No surprises. There's nobody over Him that's going to surprise Him and trump His rule. So our entire life, even our sufferings, are under the absolute and total control of God. And this was a great comfort to them. Great comfort to them. Last thing I want you to see is that they made specific requests. Okay? They could have just said, God help us. And that's fine. But they asked very specific things. Verse 29, they said, Lord, look upon their threats. They laid what just happened before the presence of God. And they said, God, arise. God, look at what just happened. Rise up, O Lord. See it. Let it come into your ears. That rebellion against Jesus Christ. Second thing they ask is this. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. With all boldness. We'll come back to that. Notice in verse 30 that in the midst of the word going out, word proclaimed, with boldness, they bow the knee and they ask God to visit the preaching of His Word 
with powerful miracles. God, show them how powerful you are. Show them that you're the living God. Show them that you will not be overpowered in the midst of this opposition. Don't let them silence us, Lord. Grant us boldness to continue to speak. They're, they're carrying these specific requests to God. Verse 31 tells us that they get very specific answer. I don't think we've been in a prayer meeting like this. We've seen answers to prayer. Don't get me wrong. We, we serve the living God at this church. God answers our prayers. But when this prayer meeting closed, the, the building started shaking like an earthquake. And I want you to imagine the encouragement that that would have given these, these apostles and the church gathered around them. God starts shaking the building. And it's like He's saying, I heard you. I'm here. I'm about to stretch out my hand and glorify Jesus. He's shaking the building. And then they receive that very specific answer. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. With boldness. So what I want to... What I want to close with is an encouragement to every disciple of Jesus in this room. That verse just told us that God did something in a church to where every single person was filled with the Holy Spirit and preached Jesus Christ. Do you want that in this church? Me too. So I want us to spend some time thinking about this for a moment. And I want us to leave this place encouraged that this shows us what God is like. This is who God is. He fills every member of His church with His Holy Spirit so that they can boldly speak about Jesus. And in order to camp here for a second, I want, I want to ask you two questions. Two things for you to consider. For us to think about for a moment. We got to undo some wrong ideas about boldness. And here's the first question. Why, why are the ones who were already speaking God's word with boldness, why are those same ones asking for boldness? Scratch your head on that for a second. They're already they're already preaching with boldness. Listen, astonishing boldness. Their boldness is like knocking over the scholars and the scribes on the Sanhedrin. And yet these same men bow the knee and ask God for boldness. What are, what are we supposed to learn about that? And I think one of the things is this, that we tend to think wrongly about boldness. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Boldness, brothers and sisters, is not a personality trait. Let me, let me reason with you for a second on that. I understand maybe in some spheres it works like that, but Christianity doesn't work like that. Christian boldness is not a personality trait. Where you divide up the body of Christ and that's the bold ones and that's not the not so bold ones. That's wrong. Okay? That is wrong. It is not a personality trait. 
Every believer in Jesus Christ can be filled with boldness to speak about Jesus. Look at what we just read. Verse 31. The Word of God says that. Every believer can have boldness. Every believer can be filled with the Spirit and speak with boldness. But here's the thing. It doesn't come from inside of us. It's something that comes from outside of us. Boldness is not something that we work up, okay? It's not something that we, you know, dig up from deep, deep within. This is outside source of power coming in, okay? And so we got to think rightly about this. Boldness comes from outside of us, not inside of us. And then another wrong idea is that some Christians just get this mega dose of boldness when they're born again. And, and, and they never have to worry about that stuff anymore. Well, this, pa- this passage confronts that idea. This idea that God just gives boldness once for all. Boldness is something that we have to repeatedly go to God for. We have to seek Him for power. We have to have our boldness in Christ renewed over and over and over again. So I want you to consider that question. Why are the bold ones asking for boldness? And that's my answer. This is how God designed it. Continually going to God to be filled with power. Second thing I want you to consider is this. It's interesting how this passage ends. The church asked for boldness to preach God's word. God gave them the spirit. Say that again. They didn't ask for the Spirit. They asked for boldness to preach. And God's answer to that request was to fill them with the Holy Spirit. Are you encouraged by this? Does that mess with you a little bit? If it does mess with you, let it mess with you. But it encourages me... Because it reminds me that my God has a plan in my life to drive out fear, to drive out timidity, to drive out cowardice, to drive out not speaking of Jesus. And God's plan in my life and in yours is to fill us with a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. Boldness comes from the Spirit dwelling inside of us. They ask for boldness. God gives them the Spirit. Question for you to consider. Are you asking for this in your life? Are you praying and asking God, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill up my life with the power of the Spirit of God. Are you obeying that commandment in Ephesians 5? Be filled with the Spirit. Or are you ignoring that commandment? Is this a a real request for you to be filled with power from on high? To be filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Something that we need to see walking away from this text is that if we're going to be a church where every member is speaking the Word of God with boldness, then we have to be a church where every member is filled with the Spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit. 
We are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit's power for everything. And we definitely need the Spirit's power to preach Jesus Christ rightly. We need the Holy Spirit. And I'm greatly encouraged how this passage ends. That it shows me what God is like. Because God is, is the kind of God that fills everybody in His church with the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit to everybody. From the least of them to the greatest of them, everybody knows God, everybody has the Spirit, everybody can ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is who your Father in Heaven is. You ask Him to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and He does not tell you no. He's willing. He's willing. I have a very specific passage that I want to leave us with. And I want, you, I want to give you this passage of Scripture. And I want to send you in your prayer closet this week. This is a promise and a reminder of who the God of the Bible is. Turn to Luke chapter 11. We'll close with verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's who our Father is. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You today. God, thank You for reminding us of Your Gospel today. God, thank You for allowing us to worship Your holy name today. Lord, let it be pleasing to You. God, thank You for this reminder that You give us of Yourself, that You are a God of power, Lord. And You're willing to give Your power to Your people, to Your children. And God, I pray for Grace Community Church, Lord, my brothers and sisters and myself. And God, I do. I ask you to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we tell you that it's impossible to have too much of you. God, to know too much about you, to experience too much of you. Lord, impossible. You're an infinite God. Lord, come and work powerfully in our midst, Lord. God, we want to exalt your strength and not the strength of our flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.